0: Welcome to Stumptown Soundcheck, our featured podcast today on our podcast co-op. Jamie Dunphy, your host, will guide you through the pulse of Portland's music scene, revealing its rich tapestry and exploring its significant cultural, economic, and societal implications. Whether you're a passionate fan of music, seeking to delve deeper into Portland's vibrant music scene, or a policymaker aiming to better understand the intersection of music and community dynamics, or simply someone who is curious about how music impacts our lives in more ways than we realize. This podcast has something for you. Welcome once again to Stumptown Soundcheck, and here's your host, Jamie Dunphy.
1: Welcome back to Stumptown Soundcheck, our monthly conversation about the vital intersection of music and public policy. I'm your host, Jamie Dunphy. When the COVID pandemic started, Cancelled concerts and dark stages were the first sign of how serious the situation would become. Thanks to swift, organized effort by many, including my guest today, Congress took action and temporarily kept music venues and performance stages afloat, while audiences were forced to stay away. Four years later, those audiences haven't returned in the same way. Costs have gone up, livability issues and bad behavior on the streets impact venues both directly and indirectly, and unchecked corporate monopolies are decimating the independent music venue industry in every major city in America. My guests today have been at the forefront of the fight for our independent venues, both here in Oregon and across the nation. Jim Brunberg is the owner of both Mississippi Studios and Revolution Hall. When COVID hit in 2020, he formed the Independent Venue Coalition. It's a statewide organization focused on advocating for emergency government support for independent music venues across Oregon. He's also board vice president of the National Independent Venues Association. Welcome, Jim. Uh, Howdy. Stephen Parker is the executive director of NEVA, the National Independent Venues Association. Stephen spent his career working on behalf of states as an advisor to both Republican and Democratic governors in state capitals and as the federal lobbyist in D.C. on behalf of governors. He also served for a decade as the national leader of the National Governors Association. Welcome, Stephen. Great to be here. Jim. Starting with you, let's start with a little bit of recent history. Tell me about the COVID pandemic and how the Save Our Stages bill
2: came about. Well, there was a lot of siloed folks operating music venues across the country. And we were fairly disconnected in a lot of ways, which may seem surprising. But our industry just kind of works that way. And one of the reasons we came together so robustly is that we didn't know each other that well. And we were able to, like soldiers in the trenches, just dive in to a project that was was new to all of us and we knew that something had to happen the government was shutting us down and however you look at it whether it was the right thing or not to do i happened to fall on the side of yeah it was the right thing to do i think it saved lives states that were closed longer had better survival rates but in any case we needed help as an industry and we knew it so we connected together in ways that we had never done before all across the country and Maybe there were about 60 of us, people from every state just about, who were super determined to get in a very organized manner, get a a law passed that would make it so that forced closure like this would result in some help, some financial help. And that's basically what happened. We just all started to get to know and to understand the way our government works. A lot of us had never done any kind of advocacy at all. I mean, I'm a musician, lifelong musician. I had never reached out before to folks in government and asked them for help. So I think it was sort of refreshing in many states. In Texas, we found a senator, a Republican Senator Cornyn, who was willing to sponsor our bill. And in Minneapolis, we found Amy Klobuchar, and the two of them worked together to make this bipartisan, very well-supported bill. We we sent out, using our mailing list, begging and pleading to our fans and to the people who attend our venues, we ended up getting over 2 million letters written saying, hey, United States, you got to do something. And it happened on a state level, too. Here in Oregon, we did the same thing with the Oregon leadership. And across the country, several other states jumped in and were able to help venues as well.
1: So how? what kind of money were you we talking about? For the folks who don't understand the scope of the Save Our Stages bill, how much money was this from the federal government? What kind of money did the states give as well? And like, is there anything to compare this to?
2: No. We asked for quite a bit. For many states, this was an 18-month total halt in commerce and total halt in programming. Theaters couldn't put on plays. Nobody could do anything for up to 18 months. So we asked for a lot. We didn't get as much as we asked for, but when you add it all up across the country, and one thing we learned from this, it's a lot of money. We received $16.25 billion spread across the country to Broadway musical halls to large venues, small venues, little mom and pop places in Elkin, Nevada, in Elgin, Oregon. There were so many different types of entities that were helped by this bill. It was the largest arts funding vehicle in the history of arts funding, by far. It, the 16.25 billion dwarfed the entire NEA budget pretty much since its inception, if I understand correctly. But that's really what it took when spread wide and when distributed to help save these businesses during the pandemic. It didn't do anything post-pandemic for the effects that we're still seeing of the pandemic because the pandemic changed people's behavior and it changed the way that people feel about going out in public and it changed people's habits. So it didn't do anything to help that, but it did get us through the pandemic.
1: Steven, you have a lot of governance experience, but your bio isn't clearly music related. How did you get involved in Neva? And can you tell us a little bit about, I guess, the birth of Neva and how you got involved in this work, but also where things are now and what you're seeing across the country for all your members?
3: Sure, absolutely. I would like to say upfront that I had nothing to do with the Save Our Stages bill passing, but I watched as a fan what Jim. And all of the members of NEVA were doing in 2020. My local venue is is a place called the Birchmere. I live in Alexandria, Virginia. And late one night in April of 2020, as we were all figuring out what was going to happen next and whether we would ever go back to living our lives normally, you know, I was on Facebook and I saw the Birchmere post a news story about a letter that was sent from a new venues group to Congress asking for resources. I clicked on it. I immediately Googled who was behind it. I found the executive director at the time of Rev Moose's phone number and I called it at nine o'clock at night and he miraculously answered and wondered who I was and why I was calling him late at night. But basically he said that you should talk to him if you want to help us with advocacy and at the time I was at the national governor's association. And we were in the midst of our own battle to make sure that states and localities were getting funding to deal with the impacts of COVID and eventually to help recover from COVID. And basically, I emailed with Dana. I told her that I was there if they needed me, but they didn't. And the reason why they didn't need me is because all of us in D.C. who have been lobbyists forever, looked at what Neva was able to do in approximately nine months, and. We were dumbfounded by the scope of their advocacy and also the fact that they were able to penetrate Congress so quickly and get to the major players and get their bill not only introduced, but to get it to move. Eight months is light speed. It is hours. Oh yeah. In congressional yeah. time, hours. And what they were able to do is truly miraculous. I hope that we see it again. Although hopefully in better times, but basically moving forward, they created a voice nationally for live performance. When even though it exists has existed since the founding of our country, it it did not have a voice until three and a half years ago. And thanks to Jim and his colleagues, it now exists. So I got involved because I was a fan, and I am fortunate that I stayed in touch with Moose and members and the board and was selected for this job a year ago, and it's been a hell of a ride.
1: Jim, you mentioned that historically the music venues have been pretty siloed and disconnected from each other, relatively head down and focused on the business, but not able to look up and identify the community around them. Now that the Independent Venue Coalition and the National Independent Venues Association exist and have robust leadership and robust membership, what is been the change in the community? What have venues been doing differently? How is the business different on that side of it?
2: Oh, it's, it's hugely different in a good way. Many facets of it. When I said that venues are siloed, I meant sort of from each other. Venues are very familiar with their own communities. You know, the, the hideout in Chicago, for example, has an incredible community of people that are associated with it. it the venue itself is used for all types of events, political, think tanks, local ways that the neighborhoods get together to figure out how they're going to make the region a better place. Musicians, obviously, comedy nights, the community is strong within each venue and as its tendrils go out into the community around it. But for example, I didn't know Dana, the First Avenue folks in Minneapolis. I'd played the venues even. As a musician, I'd played two or three of her venues in the past, but I didn't really connect with the business and what they were all about, even though I ended up you know, opening my own venues. There's just something, like you said, you just kind of have to keep your head down and just, the margins are pretty tight. So to run a venue and have it survive is quite a bit of work. So once you're in there, you just kind of do it. But now we have meetings every week, several meetings every week, different types of community meetings where venue owners get on and talk about the Good things that they're doing with their local folks, or they talk about advocacy that they're working on, ways that we can advantage the industry as a whole, the, the performing arts industry. And there are new initiatives. A huge one is that we're going to fix ticketing. We're going to work together here. We have a bill that is in the Senate right now that we are working on called Fans First. It was originally called Fix the Ticks for anybody who's been tracking that and we're figuring out a way that these secondary and tertiary ticket sellers won't fleece the people or practice deceptive practices against ticket buyers. They do all kinds of wacky stuff to make billions of dollars of profits every year, but they don't actually provide any service. They buy up all of our tickets using bots and then resell them at whatever the market will bear, which sometimes causes situations like what you saw in Taylor Swift. Now, it's really It's a customer service issue for us, because you might think, well, what's wrong, what's that to you, venues? You're still selling the tickets. But for us, we really are tightly enmeshed with the patrons that come to my venues, Mississippi Studios, Revolution Hall, Polaris, the people who come to visit my venues have to be happy or it's not going to work. And if they buy a ticket from a StubHub or something, it ends up not being a real ticket that's a trust issue between us and them. And we have to explain to them, oh, sorry, that's not a real ticket. Or we didn't charge $400 for that ticket. That was the tertiary market. So we're getting out into the community and helping prevent stuff like that. But we're also exchanging ideas and we're more connected now. And we exchange ideas about how to better serve our communities, which is really great. As a former
1: musician, The fragmented state of the music industry was something that I always recognized and because everybody was head down and focused on getting things out, I love that there is open dialogue and continued advocacy and continued partnerships being built around this. That does lead me to my next question. What are the new challenges? You were mentioning that the, the audiences aren't returning in the same way. And every major city in the country is facing some serious livability issues. Stephen, starting with you, what are some of the challenges post-COVID that venues are facing right now?
3: So the first uh, that you've probably been reading about lately and Polestar and on CNBC.com is inflation. We know that broadly in this country, inflation has slowed, but that hasn't changed the dynamics for venues. Venues are still recovering. Small venues are in an especially vulnerable position right now as they continue to recover from the impacts of COVID. And many of them are not back to their 2019 ticket sales levels. And Jim is much better positioned to talk about the plight of small venues than I am. But broadly, what we're seeing is that costs are going up, labor is more expensive, and venues are still not bringing in what they were in 2019 in a broad variety of cases. And because of that, it's becoming harder for venues to stay open. We are seeing closures still because of the broad economic impacts that are still on venues and the pressures on them. The second thing that we're seeing is a change in consumer dynamics as far as what they're purchasing. Not only are ticket sales, especially at smaller venues still recovering, but alcohol sales are, are going down. People are drinking less or people are just buying less alcohol at venues or festivals or at shows that promoters are putting on. And that is a critical income stream for venues. There was a theater in New Jersey that is a NIVA member that sent out an email last night that they're closing down. And the reason why they're closing down is because it was so hard to get a liquor license in their community. And then ultimately was the death note for them. We need to address those issues and more, including restrictive sound ordinances, parking, transportation, the cost and kind of dysfunction of the performing rights organization system and a whole bunch of other things that members continue to bring up to us every day but in the end it's very simple the main thing threatening venues is the fact that they're still recovering and costs are going up and we've got to figure out how to bridge that gap for them soon because we may lose some
2: venues and some promoters and festivals that we'll never get back i would add to what steven said that We've lost a quality of experience in the, in venues that we were, we're working on trying to get back in that a couple of things. Folks don't hang out after the show like they used to. The best thing in the world is after a great show to see people standing around or sitting around talking about what a great show it was. And we used to have that. But now I think because people are still in Oregon anyway, people are still sort of wary of crowds and they, they leave. I was just down in Austin, Texas. And it's not like that there. It's much more of a, of a hang. But in some of the states where, especially the states that were closed longer, Vermont, California and Washington and Oregon, folks have gotten out of the habit of seeing it as a place to just chill after the show. We also have lost our older generation. And this is huge. There's something really special about a multi-generational experience. I and mean, music, as, as you know, is the thing that brings people together. You can have. The a guy in a Ted Nugent t-shirt standing next to somebody with a Dolly Parton t-shirt, and they could both be rocking out to the same thing. And it's clear they come from different stripes, different political backgrounds, and have different beliefs, but they can both enjoy something and maybe compare notes and find some commonality. It's a lot harder to have those types of experiences now because people have been for several reasons dehabituated into just living the experience to its fullest and i know that sounds kind of vague it's not particularly a tangible economic statement or anything like that but it's definitely a, a little bit of a different vibe and it i see it coming back slowly and i see it coming back fully in some markets but oregon is a tough one we've lost a generation in the venues some folks just don't feel safe about coming back and it's it's weird for me to go to a show and not see the elders standing next to the the kids enjoying a tuna show, for example. It's different than it was.
1: Also, we are recording this the last week of January. We are just finishing the enormous ice storm here in Portland. I imagine that though severe weather cancellations are also having a big impact on venues. What did that ice storm have in terms of an impact for you here
2: locally, Jim? It was like post-traumatic stress about thinking about COVID, having to cancel shows, and the the specter of canceled shows was very frustrating. It it gave me a pit in my stomach that reminded me of this pit in my stomach that I had during COVID. Just bands that have driven all the way up from San Diego to do their their first show at Mississippi, having to cancel. There's just a lot of nervousness all through the industry on that. You lose a, a couple of shows a month, and you're pretty much in trouble. So when you lose four or five shows in a week, it's affecting your bottom line in ways that you can't really recover from
1: that's a great transition to my next question because just a little bit of a story there's a very small music venue here in town called turn 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 and a number of months ago they reached out to music portland and to me directly because on a monday the city of portland updated their crime statistics website and by five o'clock that day their liability insurance had called them and canceled them because the Number of 911 calls on their city block were so high that the liability insurers decided it was too high of a risk and they dropped them. And then the city of Portland denied them the emergency liability insurance because they'd had too few employees. They have been struggling to recover from that shock to the system. And I just it was announced yesterday or the day before yesterday that they will be reopening, but those kinds of external policy driven Challenges are not unique. What are some of the things that policymakers in our city really need to be paying attention to in the next year while this industry is still getting its feet?
3: If you look at the venue as a small business, then every single issue that impacts small businesses across the country and communities at the local level is what is impacting venues, promoters, festivals, and more. We are seeing commercial insurance rates. Skyrocket. If you can get insurance at all, not just an affordable rate. I know that's been a particular problem in the Pacific Northwest. That is an issue that we think not only takes the industry standing up and starting to take seriously and have a better understanding of, of how venues operate, but it's also something that we think policymakers should look very closely at. We need policymakers to look at development, particularly local policymakers. Development is driving out independent venues that have been in communities for generations. We need there to be inclusive development that isn't just bringing in the highest bidder, but taking care when a new development happens to make sure that the venue or the organization, the festival that is related to live performance, that has been serving the communities for years, has a place to go. In some cases, those are half measures and cities will say that they're doing it. But in reality, you can't take away a building that has been there for years, that is affordable when it comes to a business being there and then say, well, here's a shell of a building. Good luck finding $3 million to retrofit it. It's not possible. These are small businesses. The other thing, and this is the last thing, although the list is long, is the capital market. The reason why venues have such a hard time finding the resources to start, expand, scale, start second, third, fourth locations is because the capital market has not fairly recognized the power of independent live entertainment as a good investment or as a stable investment. What we are seeing anecdotally is systemic discrimination against our industry by the capital markets. And that's something that policymakers should look at as well. How can we incentivize or encourage or educate the capital market to create a welcoming environment for those venues that need some sort of loan or even grants in order to get started or to keep their doors open or to expand and scale and make sure that they're growing for their community. Those are three issues of a very long list that we hope that policymakers will start to look at.
1: Jim, how about you? Anything here locally that you are seeing happening in Portland specifically? And I guess also more broadly, are there things that are happening right now that lawmakers are actively considering in Oregon?
2: You know, I'm not sure with the government of Portland changing as much as it is changing, and you're more aware of that than anybody. We're really hoping that having some more minds at the table will prevent things from happening that have happened in the past. There's been pretty arbitrary abuse of discretion in Oregon and in Portland specifically about things like development. Steven mentioned, I think he mentioned zoning or there's noise ordinance aware zoning that should be happening so that a brand new cheaply built six story building of apartments that goes in next to a classic venue that's been there for 30 years. Well, the people who move into that building shouldn't be able to just make a couple noise complaints and have the venue shut down. This is what happened in San Francisco. In San Francisco, there was new development that came in. There were noise complaints, and the venues ended up suffering for it. Most of them ended up shutting down, actually, especially the smaller ones. That type of thing shouldn't happen. The city should require developers to take into consideration the local economy and the local activities of an area, all of them, when they come in to build a new development. There have been other things that have happened in Portland in recent histories, such as a URM placarding scheme that-
1: Unreinforced masonry.
2: Yeah, the city decided that all unreinforced masonry buildings would need to have a placard on them that said that it's not safe to come in here in case there's an earthquake, which is not that big of a deal on its face, but it also, the same rule also was placing a mark on the title of these buildings so that these buildings, the owners of these buildings could not borrow money in order to um seismically upgrade the building. So it pretty much rendered worthless all of the buildings that it affected. We fought that and it went away, fortunately, for now, it may come back, but mm-hmm. it was just a, a ridiculous scheme that seemed incredibly tilted towards new developers who might come in and have a, a bonsai opportunity to buy piles of bricks, basically. So that type of thing is something that we're newly aware of. Us musicians and venue owners didn't, before, we weren't always that tuned in to what was going on in government. But it's a good thing to be aware of. So I'm, I'm always encouraging all my friends and colleagues in, in the biz to to track these things so that if something like that comes along again, we can pull together and, and fight it. Uh, and we can push for smarter ideas that will encourage reasonable development as opposed to the type of development that comes in and obliterates the existing community.
1: Continuing on that, could you tell me a little bit about the bill that is currently being proposed in Salem?
2: The current proposed bill in Salem, which is Rep Nose's bill, is, and I don't know the number of it right off the top of my head, but Lou Frederick in the Senate and Rob Nose in the House of Representatives in Oregon have a funding bill that intends to complete a bill that was in the last session, 2459, that funded recovery for venues across the state and artistic entities. It funded the big seven, as they're called, the arts anchors. These are incredibly important arts organizations that bring tourism and economic activity to the state. These are organizations like the symphony here in Portland, the uh, high desert museum in Eastern Oregon, the ballet, the art museum. And they had a funding mechanism in the last session that would, uh, distribute $50 million around the state to help invest in the recovery post-COVID of these entities. For some reason, when that bill got to leadership, it got carved up, and only 7 million of it or so went through. For my interests, that is the independent venues that were named, there were 80 of them that were named, 79 independent venues, they did get the funding that was requested, but the seven arts anchors and then all of the Creative Advocacy Coalition entities and the general fund did not get funded. So basically, we attribute this to the fact that there was a walkout, there was a Republican walkout, and it was a abbreviated session, and there were some quick decisions made that weren't maybe the smartest decisions. Because it's not smart to not fund the arts. You have to invest in your communities, you have to invest in the parts of your economic system that give back the most, and it's been proven time and time again that the arts has an incredible kickback to the world at large in terms of its economic impact, in terms of how it enriches the communities, in terms of how it gives a voice to those who would otherwise be voiceless. So this new bill just simply is a completion of the bill that got carved up in the last session. And so it funds a general fund of I think $13 million for any arts organization to apply to for help and recovery funding and it funds about the same amount, I believe, for the arts anchors. So we, we're gonna be out there pushing real hard for that to pass.
1: That's fantastic. Stephen. are there exciting things that are happening in other places around the country right now that the city of Portland and the state of Oregon should copy and try to model in order to support our venues here?
3: Well, first I'll say that a lot of places around the country are, are copying what Jim and Portland and Oregon have done and are doing to preserve venues and make sure that they have a voice. And I'll just say Rob knows who Jim just mentioned. He received our policy advocate award at our conference in DC last year. So when we say that Oregon and Portland is a leader, I'm not just saying that because I'm on a podcast that's primarily listened to. And in that area, I I really mean it. And I think we have this call every week where a lot of folks, like Jim get on and just there's no agenda and they just talk about what's happening in advocacy and music and across the country. And you know, there are a few things to point to one is there's a series of cities right now that are doing what's called a music census. And that is in partnership with sound music cities, many of our venues and city governments across the country from Sacramento to two days ago, Nashville announced that they are going to be talking to musicians and venues and everybody in between as far as the music ecosystem goes to talk about what the government can do better. And that sort of data and research is so critical for us to know what to do next and also to know where the gaps are and how we can better serve the music community, particularly artists and the workers that are employed throughout the music industry and communities all over the country, not just Music City, but communities like Portland, but also places like Des Moines And places like Columbia, Maryland that have venues as well. The second thing I would just point to is the story that's being told in states right now, we're seeing state legislation pop up around the country on ticketing and not all of them are good bills. But we have in your neighbor to the north, the state of Washington venues stepping up and, and trying to beat back bills that would expand policies that would make it easier for predatory resellers to take tickets away from fans and take money out of the pockets of artists. We have members in New Jersey and Pennsylvania and Georgia that are pushing good bills to make sure the fake tickets are banned and to make sure that ticketing is fair. And there's not an expansion of policies that would make price gouging easier in the secondary market. These are all good things. And at the state and local level, you know, we see that venues, they're stepping up like they did in 2020. And they're taking the success of Save Our Sages and those historic investments that were created by that bill. And they're using that momentum to make sure that they're impacting positively their communities at the state and local level, and it's inspiring to see.
1: Jim, you're gonna get the last question for me. Okay. What's the state of Portland music right now? And what do we need to do in order to try and make it better?
2: We need more affordable housing. (laughs) That's something that you and I personally probably aren't going to be able to effectuate, but I always push for that. Because when I moved to Portland, From San Francisco, it was a beautiful thing because me and 10 musicians could all live in Portland for pretty much the price that it would have cost just one of us to live in San Francisco. Affordable housing is always a plus for not just musicians, but fans of music. Vibrant economy needs all sectors represented. Unfortunately, developers develop with a mind towards having higher end units available. So that's sort of an obvious I would just encourage people to come out and spend as much time as possible getting away from streaming people got into the habit of streaming so lame come on people netflix is so 2012 to sit around your house and watch movies by yourself or with a couple people isn't nearly the rich fun experience of going to hear live actual performers on a stage somewhere whether it's a shakespeare play or whether it's some a cappella, improvised experience, or whether it's a punk show, I guarantee you, you'll have memories that, that will stay with you for your entire life and you'll learn something and you'll meet people. So getting people out of their houses is a challenge. When, when the state has made it so that, that all they could do for 18 months was stay at home, people found ways to entertain themselves at home, which is great, and I'm glad they did. But now it's time to rejoin each other. <laughs> to stand together and enjoy concerts together. The music is there. The bands are incredible right now. There are so many. People who make music didn't stop making music during COVID. They kept doing it because they had to. It's an imperative. It's in your blood. It's in your heart. You just keep doing it. The art is stronger than ever. It's that the audiences aren't completely back yet. And the audiences that are there are amazing. You can tell that the people who kept coming and the people who showed up the day after we opened, post-COVID, the first, before the Delta wave, when we were open (laughs) in the late summer, I think of 22, I think it was, they were stalwart souls. Those shows were tear-jerkers, they were, it was just so amazing to be in the same space again with each other and enjoying a common thing. That was amazing, and it still is. It's still just like that. It's just that we have not, as Stephen said earlier, we haven't gone back to the types of numbers that we had in 2019 a really special show will come through like devo and people you know it's their 50th anniversary and it's and it's sold out because they're never going to tour again it's a final tour well of course it sold out instantly and we had all the associated problems with tertiary ticket sellers and resellers getting in there and mucking it up and saying that they had tickets for sale when they really didn't have tickets for sale and all that happened but the show itself was incredible and people in the audience were just There were all these 60-year-old men with tears flowing down their cheeks. It was an incredible experience to watch these people come together and to know that it was the last time they were going to see Devo and everything. But as the venue owner, I can look at the receipts and I know that we had 15% no-shows. 15% of the people who bought tickets for Devo didn't come out. And that means that they either got cold feet, I mean, it was such a hot ticket. Everybody talked about it. There was a huge aftermarket blitz by the ticket resellers to try to resell tickets and everything. How can it be that 15% of people who buy a fairly expensive ticket to see an incredibly legendary band are buying their ticket and then deciding to stay home that night? That is a huge problem. Some nights it's as much as 25% non-redemption rate is what it's called. 25% non-redemption rate means that people have bought a ticket to a show and then decided not to go. That's because there are these habits that people have gotten into, when I think just, they're watching Netflix. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that many people are sick. I think that folks are just out of the habit and have lost touch with that magic you experience with other people at a live performing arts event. So I would just encourage people to have the courage to go out. Absolutely, thank you, that's exactly correct. Well, we've reached
1: the end of our conversation for today. I wanna to thank Jim Brunberg and Steven Parker for joining me this afternoon. Special thank you to Veronica Bassesti and Daniel Lynn and the team at Portland Radio Project for making me sound so good every month. Thank you for joining us this afternoon for a conversation about music, and we'll talk to you all next month on the next Stumptown Soundcheck. I've been your host, Jamie Dunphy. Stay safe out there.
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of Stumptown Soundcheck on PRP's Podcast Co-op. We hope you've enjoyed our informative discussion on Portland's music scene and its significance in our society and economy. Stumptown Soundcheck is a production of Portland Radio Project in collaboration with Music Portland. Our episode was edited by Daniel Lynn. Episodes air the fourth Sunday of every month. Until next time, stay connected to PRP and keep advocating for our vibrant music community.